0: A number of weeks ago as a church we commissioned finally Patrick Ray and a group of members and regular attenders here from Gospel Life Church to start Northside Neighborhood Church in North Minneapolis and um, Patrick texted me two things in the last 24 hours that I wanted to pass on to you so that we can continue to lift them up and pray so that we can rejoice with them so that we can weep with them and really stand with them as ascending church but um. This morning, so I'll, I'll share this morning's first, Patrick texted saying, an eight-year-old girl was shot last night while jumping on her trampoline. It's getting really bad here. We need prayer. I say this just as a reminder that there's a lot of violence occurring in North Minneapolis, and this is happening at historic proportions. More recently, this comes on the heels of another girl who was shot in the back seat of a car waiting there uh, by a stray bullet. And... Um, we need to continue to lift up Patrick and Shelby and, and their family, our launch team. Uh, we need to continue to lift up Northside Neighborhood Church's uh, gospel proclamation in this neighborhood. We need to pray for peace. But we rejoice too, because yesterday night, Patrick texted me, well, a few things, but finding it, he texted me, uh, You should tell GLC that we're baptizing four people on Sunday. Just to give them a, an update of what's happening as a result of y'all sending us. And then he updated me later on, baptizing five people tomorrow. Dale, Laura, their daughter Kennedy, and two twin 11-year-old boys, uh, Jeremiah and Jemiah. So uh, praise God. Praise the Lord that in the midst of the hardship and difficulty and all of the um, challenges that's surrounding this small church plant in the Jordan neighborhood of North Minneapolis, the Lord is at work. He's changing hearts and we need to, we need to pray for them. So let's pray for them. This morning as we get started, let's pray for us as we open the word. Lord, we thank you for Northside Neighborhood Church. We thank you for Patrick and Shelby and the burden that you placed on their hearts for gospel proclamation as they moved into the Jordan neighborhood years ago and started to form and shape this vision. Thank you for sending them to Gospel Life Church and the opportunity that we had uh, to serve alongside of them as Patrick served as church planting apprentice here. Thank you for how you worked and moved and and grew the ideas of this plant um, for those years that they were with us. And Thank you, Lord, that they are sent and we pray for them, Lord. We pray that you would uphold them. We pray, Lord, for uh, a gospel-proclaiming ministry that brings about revival in North Minneapolis. We pray that revival would happen in the midst of churches. Lord, make us a people in Minneapolis of of, uh, prayer and the word. Just pray, Lord, that the churches across Minneapolis would be crying out to you in prayer and would be proclaiming the gospel that's at the center of the scriptures. And as Patrick and Shelby pray and as we lift them up and as they proclaim the gospel, I pray that that revival that's happening in the midst of their congregation, evidenced by these five baptisms that we give you, prays for that that revival would spill over. We pray for revival in the Jordan neighborhood. We pray for revival uh, in surrounding neighborhoods in North Minneapolis. We pray for revival here in Crystal. We pray for revival across the Twin Cities. Lord, I I pray that you'd use us to that end here, and I pray that you'd even start this morning in our hearts as we open the Word. Lord, by your Spirit, be active in your Word to bring about um, our own revival repentance lord a conviction of sin and repentance that that by your spirit brings transformation and and um and growth and so i pray that you'd start in our hearts make us this morning creatures of the word people of prayer and i pray that that would have this leavening effect in the world that you've placed us in we love you jesus we pray that you do this in your name amen picking up where we left off last sunday okay So just to remind you, we concluded our time by noting something that's important by way of theme in Genesis. Okay, so we needed to think about, and we continue to need to think about, especially as Genesis wraps up, who this primary intended audience of the Pentateuch really was initially. An ancient Near East Palestinian reader of the Pentateuch. And we talked about how these, okay, so the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All written very much as a a singular unit. All written by a single author and later editor of these things. uh, Seen as a unifying kind of work. And at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of the Pentateuch, we see that it's addressing itself to an audience that has witnessed the passing of Moses. The great prophet. But it hasn't yet witnessed uh, the fulfillment of many of the prophecies that he spoke, namely this promise that God gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that He would restore His people again to His place under His rule. There's a longing for this. There's a waiting for this. Yes, there, God had been at work clearly through the Pentateuch to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. He'd been at work to um, to to bring them into to a new season together. But they were outside of the land, wandering in the desert because of their own sin. And so this is the audience that Joshua is presented to at the end of Deuteronomy. And when he's presented, as we talked about last week, he's presented using the exact same words that we saw together last week in Genesis 40 and that we see together this week in 41. Joshua is one who's filled, according to Deuteronomy, filled with the spirit of wisdom. Okay, In the same way that we see now Joseph described by Pharaoh... As one who is, look at verses 38 and 39 in our text this morning. He says, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are, Pharaoh says to Joseph. So, one who's filled with the Spirit of God and of wisdom. Same words that apply to Joshua. We talked last week about how Joseph therefore stands as this prototype of all of the later wise men of Israel. But that this is also a foreshadowing of kind of new covenant theology. That unlike the Joseph's predecessors in the patriarchs up to this point who, in which we just saw failure after failure after failure. We see in Joseph a foreshadowing of new hearts given by the spirit of God that enables us to discern spiritual thing. No longer natural man unable to discern the spiritual, but with God's spirit, new hearts that can discern through God's spirit all things. And so the readers of, of this chapter are now called upon to follow this, a man like Joseph, to follow Joshua. And in, and in the first chapter of Joshua, immediately following the Pentateuch, so Deuteronomy ends, then in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, Josh, the book of Joshua begins. In the very first chapter, God's commissioning joshua in whom is the spirit of wisdom and the lord says to him this he says be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that i swore to their fathers to give to them only be strong and very courageous being careful to do all the law the law that moses my servant commanded you do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left so in commissioning joshua here's what happens the Lord wants to give him assurance of this promise. You shall cause the people to inherit the land that I promised your forefathers. Okay, So he wants to give Joshua assurance of this promise over and against surrounding culture. And the reason that we know this is because we see a doubling of the Lord's language to Joshua. There's a doubling effect in the text. Be strong and courageous. Only be strong and courageous. These same words bookend this, this promise that's being made there isn't a doubling of the mission that they're called to there's a doubling of the reality that joshua can find certainty in it enough certainty to to bring about strength and courage for the task at hand there's a doubling of the command in order to show joshua that that this has been firmly decided by the lord that it shall indeed come to pass he doesn't need to worry about the promises coming to pass because it's been fixed Fixed by God. This technique of giving assurance of some promise through a pattern of twos. A doubling. Saying something twice in order to verify. This is indeed the case. This is something we find throughout the scriptures. But it's especially found here in Genesis 41. In this narrative of this character that foreshadows Joshua. Prototype of him. But also foreshadows someone else who's yet to come. That will fully and finally uh, make good on God's promises. The question that God's people might still have in situations like this one. In Genesis 41 that we're going to be reading this morning. Or that Joshua might have in, in uh, Joshua 1 during his commissioning. Or that we continue to have today. Is whether or not what the Lord has promised really will come to pass. Right? I mean... Look, it's very easy to look around and survey our circumstances that we find ourselves in and say, how on earth is God going to make good on his promises given what I see, given what I experience, given the challenges ahead? Will it actually happen? I mean, the reader of these these Joseph narratives has to be asking this throughout, like, okay, but yeah, but is this possibly going to come to bear? Because here we have Joseph who's imprisoned for his righteousness, how is this going to happen? And we and similar to the Lord's repetition with Joshua, we have an even more explicitly stated repetition surrounding a similar theme here. God specifically tells the reader; he tells Pharaoh through through uh, Joseph why he's giving them this repetition. So, to give us a little bit of structure with how we're going to read. This chapter, chapter 41 this morning, uh, there's a doubling theme. It started to occur last week. I wanted to draw a little bit more of attention to it than we ended up having time for. Uh, But now it spills fully over into our text, into chapter 41 this week. We see a pattern of twos. Okay, so if you remember back in chapter 40, we saw two dreams. Two officials of the king with two dreams. One good and the other bad. The cupbearer's dream is interpreted to mean that he will restore, uh, he will be restored to his office. Pharaoh will restore him. He'll have the trust of the king. He'll put the cup back into the king's hand. While the chief baker's dream is interpreted to mean that he will be executed and the birds will feast on his flesh. Right There's sort of this uh, moment where the chief baker is encouraged and then his hopes are shattered. And this is actually how things play out. And each of those two dreams are interpreted twice the the, uh, the meaning of them is given twice. Once in chapter 40 by the narrator of the chapter and again by uh, the cupbearer here in chapter 41. And the series of twos continue because if you look at, into verse 41 with me this morning, thanks for reading all of that Toby, you'll see in verse 1 that uh, the king is said to have been now two years past what transpired in the prison earlier on. So we're two years have gone by, another set of twos, and now in verse 5, the king is said to have two dreams. One part of the dream is good, and the other part of the dream is bad, so very similar to what we saw last week, and each of these two dreams is repeated twice, once by the narrator early, early on in the chapter, and then once later on by Pharaoh himself as he recounts these things to Joseph, and there's a few other examples as well, but We have to ask why the series of two? Why the doubling? And in this case, as we said earlier, we are actually told why. All of this doubling and the series of twos is intended to point forward to the reality that this actually will play out the way that the Lord said it will. In other words, we can uh, have trust and assurance in the faithfulness of God, in the workings of God, that God is in charge, that He's not out of control. It'll play out the way that the Lord says it will. Verse 32 stands at the center of the text. The center of this doubling effect. It tells us why the author is doing this. Why there's this repetition. Why everything is happening twice. So look there with me. It says, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means, this is Joseph speaking to Pharaoh. We'll read it again in a little bit. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. This can actually be translated and has been by a number of other commentaries. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the matter has been firmly decided by God. That's what it means, fixed by God. Firmly decided and God will do it soon. This is happening. This is upon us. You can have assurances that this is true, that God speaks truly. And this doubling has the effect of saying, just in case the first dream didn't convince you, Pharaoh, here's another. Just in case the first set of dreams didn't convince you that I'm the source of all interpretation and truth, here's two more. The matter's been firmly decided. God will do it soon. So this text, here's, for those of you who like outlines and like to take notes and like to see how texts are structured, okay. This text has two sets of twos in in our outline, both giving assurances towards what God Uh, has done, and will continue to do in this narrative. Alright, two sets of twos with the purpose of giving assurance to the reader that it's God who's at work. Alright, first we're going to see, as I've given some of the background to you, first we'll see two dreams meant to be interpreted. That's the first set of twos. Two dreams meant to be interpreted as what happens with Pharaoh's dream points the reader forward to future events, and that leads to the second set of twos. Two narratives meant to be contrasted because what happens here with Joseph actually will point us back. And we see this a lot with Genesis, where the author actually mirrors two narratives. Where, where something happens that reminds us, oh yeah, that brings us back to a, a, not just a prior theme, but it seems to be very intentionally connected. So two narratives meant to be contrasted as he points us backward to a previous narrative and shows us that God's doing redemptive work in the midst of all of this. That this isn't all for naught. That it's not just random that God is, is doing something here. So that's the outline Two sets of twos with the purpose of giving assurance of God's faithfulness to the reader. Two dreams meant to be interpreted. Two narratives meant to be contrasted. So let's begin with two dreams meant to be interpreted. And this section is really the first 36 verses of the chapter. Let's read the first eight verses just to get a little bit of context. After after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. Right? That's not a dream that I want to have. And Pharaoh awoke. Okay. He fell asleep and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the seven ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt, all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Okay, so... Pharaoh's dreams here, in a lot of ways, maybe seem a little, even a little bit more straightforward. Maybe not than the cupbearer's dream, but certainly more straightforward than the chief baker's dream from last week. And we talked about this last week, too, that, that as it relates to discerning spiritual realities, just because something seems certain or straightforward to us, doesn't mean that it is. Like, that's the mistake that the chief baker makes of getting a little bit overly optimistic about his coming interpretation instead of approaching it cautiously, but we can actually see the sense of each dream in its internal elements. So seven good cows, seven good heads of grain are seven good years. Seven thin ugly cows, seven blighted bad heads of grain are seven bad years, okay that follow that. that's interesting. Because just like in the New Testament, you know, when Jesus is speaking in parables, and he says that these kinds of stories actually conceal spiritual meaning for those without ears and those without eyes to discern, right? For those who really don't have discernment, for the rest of the world, these stories conceal meaning. Something very similar happens here. The king's magicians, the wise men, they can't can't say for sure. They don't want to risk a fraudulent interpretation, you know, so he, this is he's obviously pretty freaked out by it because he calls everybody. But nobody wants to risk it because it would surely bring them to the same fate that the chief baker had, you know, in the last chapter. So they kind of scratch their heads collectively at it, and they're all in unison at not <laughs> interpreting this thing. But then the, the chief cupbearer finally remembers, okay, starting in verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer says to Pharaoh, said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put... Me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. So we see another repetition there at the end of what happened so this is where we see really uh, in, in places like this more than other places even in the text God's sovereign hand at work because I think the disappointment that we all collectively feel at the end of chapter 40 you know when we read that after all of this even after Joseph specifically said listen you need to remember me I've been imprisoned unjustly after he interprets these dreams perfectly and and uh, this this chief cupbearer sees that all this is the case, says that he won't forget Jacob Joseph, Joseph, but he rises to power quickly, and Joseph isn't even close to the forefront of his mind. And that's not uncommon, you know, and there are multiple stories even throughout history in which a, a king rises to power and forgets his closest allies very quickly, you know, you're back into a position of power. And so Joseph's not even close to the forefront of his mind. And because of that, the readers, I think, are meant to feel collectively frustrated. You know, like, I remember i, I remember a lot of stories as a kid. But I actually remember how I felt the first time I, I heard this story. And it might not have been the first time. But the f- first time I remember hearing it, you know. I remember hearing this and being like, wait, what? What happened? I was outraged. He didn't remember. He just... He left Joseph in prison after Joseph told him exactly what was going to happen. Like this is Joseph's ticket finally out of this mess. But, it, you know, it's something of a setup. When you're reading chapter 41, this is God setting you up. In terms of our trust in his sovereignty. Because the readers intended to feel this way, you know. The readers intended to feel this way along with Joseph. Like who wouldn't feel this way? How could this happen? Joseph's imprisoned. Not just wrongly but he's in prison for doing what was right you know it's not just that he didn't do the thing it's that he actually did the right thing and he's still imprisoned and here finally there's this moment where he can be freed because of what happens and he's completely forgotten and yet it turns out when we see this story and the scope of the story the cupbearer's forgetfulness works in joseph's favor because he remembers joseph at the most opportune moment and recommends his wisdom to the king when there's every guarantee that it's going to be heard. I mean, in other words, if the cupbearer had come and said something to the king immediately, maybe Joseph would have been released, maybe, you know. Maybe he would have been, okay, he did something good, he's kind of made penance, go and set him off on his own. But maybe the king wouldn't have even cared, you know, like, okay, so someone in prison got your dreams right. Why are you bothering me? But now Pharaoh has something of a situation very similar to that of the cupbearer, you know. And the chief baker, the same words are actually used. He's he's troubled in his spirit. He, He has the same kind of vivid, visceral kind of dream like we talked about last week, you know. Not every dream that you have really stands out. We have a lot of dreams. I have a feeling that Pharaoh dreamed a lot of dreams that he didn't feel the need to summon all of his servants to hear, okay. It's a pretty rare response. He wakes up from this one, just like with the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, very, very troubled by this. And uh, because of that, he's in a position to not only hear the words from Joseph, hear the words about Joseph, but to hear it in a very self-interested kind of posture, you know. This is now something involving him. He's greatly troubled, and so this is something that he causes him to sit up and pay attention. And he sends for Joseph. And all that to say, it's another example of an account that while we're reading it in real time, we don't understand. We don't understand why things are shaking out the way that they're shaking out. We don't understand why God is, is letting certain things happen, allowing certain things to happen, driving the narrative a certain way in his own sovereign will. But we see that in the end he is. Sovereign over all of it, right? That God has fixed it. He will bring it to pass. In any case, Pharaoh now does send for Joseph. Look at verse 14. Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. They quickly brought him out of the pit. When he had shaved himself, changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So once again, just like in the last chapter, Joseph is very quick to explain. That he's only able to discern because of the Lord. That Joseph's ears can't discern anything. Joseph doesn't understand anything. But through the Lord, there's discernment. Through the Lord, there's wisdom. There's not wisdom on Joseph's account. There's wisdom on the Lord's account. He's the source of all interpretation. Outside of him, we don't have that. In him, we have it for everyone. Okay, so Pharaoh recounts the same dream starting in verse 17. So if you look there, you'll see that Pharaoh actually recounts the same thing. There's repetition here that we heard from Toby. uh, in essentially the same terms that the writer told us. There are two things that Pharaoh adds, and we'll get to that because they're significant in a little bit. But uh, for now, just know... All that's repeated again by Pharaoh. And so we ask again, why the repetition? Because the author wants the readers to feel. Why didn't he just say, and Pharaoh repeated his dream? He wants the readers to hear and feel the same thing that Pharaoh is hearing. He wants us to hear then the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Verse 32. God wants to give us assurance of the reality That when he speaks, he speaks truly. So as we've heard, read this morning, these dreams are meant to be interpreted. So that God could show what he's going to do. And how he's currently at work saving his people in the midst of it. Uh, There's going to be seven years of great plenty in Egypt. Followed by severe famine that will swallow up all the plenty and then some. It will consume the whole land, right? Right? And it's interesting because, you know, Joseph's wisdom in the situation isn't just the interpretation of the dream itself, but the wisdom that he receives from the Lord is also the counsel that he gives to Pharaoh. It's seen as equally important as the ability to interpret the dream. In other words, he doesn't just say, so that's what that means, and I'm sure you got advisors for the rest. That's what it it means, and good luck with it. I mean, if I were you, I would... I would live, really live it up these next seven years because after that we're all going to die. You know, this is what, how Joseph responds at all. The, uh, the counsel that he gives him is seen as equally wise. This also comes from this discernment that he's been given from, from the Lord. He gives counsel. Starting in verse 33 Now let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land to take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Okay, so first set of twos, two dreams meant to be interpreted. Joseph has the opportunity to discern and interpret these dreams before Pharaoh, give wise counsel on how to proceed. But now that brings us to Pharaoh's response. We've seen the dreams effectively interpreted. What's Pharaoh going to do now that he hears this and he hears the counsel that Joseph has given him? And this is where we find in Pharaoh's response and a little bit actually in the the first section, we find two narratives that are meant to be contrasted. Two narratives meant to be contrasted. So, as we said above, primary reason for the set of twos in this narrative, the repetition of the narrator, repeating these things over and over again, is, is God giving assurance. The matter has been firmly decided by God. God will do it soon. But there's a deeper kind of assurance that God wants to give his people. There's something more than food in Egypt going on here. All right. There's something more than just the ability to avoid starvation. Physically. Happening here. Because when Pharaoh repeated the dream to Joseph in the first section. Like I said it was nearly identical. But he does add two major points. I would say. uh, Here in this section. Verse 19 he adds that he's never seen such bad cows in the land of Egypt. As he saw in this dream. In verse 21 he said the cows looked just as bad before they ate the good cows as they did after. So you see in both of these emphases. uh, uh, That that there's a stress placed on the bad in contrast with the good. Okay, you see a repetition in these dreams of Pharaoh needing to figure out how to discern between the good and the bad, and the way he does that is to call upon Joseph, who tells him, who tells him, the only way to do that is to recognize that you can't do it. Like, I can't discern between these things. I can't. Joseph can't, but the Lord can't. Right. That it actually it comes from the Lord and that Joseph just needs to submit and be obedient to whatever the Lord says, even if it doesn't make sense to him, because he's unable to do this apart from him. True wisdom, right discernment between good and evil, comes only from God. What other narrative in Genesis are we familiar with that's been mirrored constantly in Genesis? Do we find characters who are seeking wisdom, And desired from wisdom. And while they were on this quest for wisdom. They were confronted. With the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 3. If you remember our time there. In December of 2019 guys. Eve is looking for wisdom. Eve is looking for wisdom. Though she's been already given true wisdom in God. She has all the wisdom she needs. In her access to him. But she discounts true wisdom. For a false version attempting to find it on her own terms and guidance of her own heart and Adam joins her in this passively not protecting her at all as Selheimer accurately writes about Joseph however and listen to to the difference he says Joseph is the embodiment of the ideal that true wisdom the ability to, to discern between good and bad only comes from God it's not something that always makes sense to us this isn't something that That naturally mankind is able to look at and evaluate. This only comes from God. In other words, Joseph is something of a second Adam figure. In this narrative. Responding in the first section the way that Adam should have. And reaping the benefits that Adam should have reaped in the second section as a result. We see now more of that in verses 37 to 45. If you're a little skeptical, read this with me. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants... Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all of my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath-Paneah. And he would give him, give him in marriage a the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So this account is meant to be contrasted with the Adam narratives and continue to show us a picture that Joseph is actually something of a true and better Adam. A few commentaries point out the similarities here. Just as Adam is seen in the creation account as needing to be dependent upon the Lord for all wisdom, for the knowledge of the good and bad, so now Joseph is portrayed here in the same terms as we just saw, completely dependent upon the Lord and his wisdom. Just as Adam is made God's vicegerent to rule over the land as, as his representative head, so similarly Joseph is made Pharaoh's vicegerent according to verses 40-43 to 43 and serves as his representative head. Just as Adam was made in God's image to rule over all of the land, here in verse 42, the king gives Joseph his signet ring. This is the ring that essentially speaks for Pharaoh. He writes something and decrees it and stamps it with his signet ring, and that is Pharaoh's word. Dresses him in his own royal garments. Adam is created in God's image in the same way. God wanted Adam to have dominion over creation as his image bearer. Pharaoh's expectation for Joseph is to be an extension of Pharaoh's dominion by the people. When Joseph speaks, Pharaoh is speaking and the people must listen. But listen, where Adam fails, Joseph succeeds. We see something in in this picture of Joseph of the accomplishments of all the things that Adam failed to do. So Adam lost the good land. You know, God prepared this in, in, Gen- in Genesis 1 God and 2, God prepares this good land for Adam. And then in Genesis 3, Adam loses it. But we see something of the inverse here. Because with Joseph, he leads his people to the good land that God was providentially at work preparing for them. Adam rejected the Lord's words as true wisdom. He sought wisdom from within himself. Joseph declares that he has no wisdom to make any kinds of discernments like this apart from the Lord. And indeed, the Lord's speaking is not only his wisdom, but it's wisdom for everybody. You know, you don't hear him saying, well, I mean, this is the God of the Jews, so I'm speaking from my own wisdom, but uh, Pharaoh, the king, you have many wise men that, can can give you your own wisdom. No, this is wisdom for for all. This is truth for all, discernment for all. And yet, all of this more powerfully points forward to a true and better second Adam. So, if if Joseph is a second Adam, there's one to come who's a true and better second Adam. Because Joseph, a second Adam, is only able to extend so far as a picture of the new covenant, given a new heart, given God's spirit. He's able to lead people to a land... That God has prepared and provided. But we see in the chapters that follow very quickly the results of that. God's people are enslaved. As we close out Genesis and head into Exodus. What we come to find is that God's people are enslaved. Why? Why does this not fix the brokenness? And this obedient leader? Because it does not deal with the reality of their condition. It's a foreshadowing of what to come. But it doesn't deal with the primary problem of the human heart. And yet the author of Genesis wants us to know that a true and better Joseph, a truer and better second Adam is on his way. One who would truly be God's representative because he would be God himself. Entered into human history. That his word is truly the Lord's word because he is the Lord. The logos, the signet ring. The embodiment of all wisdom, the one who not only created but sustains and saves his people from themselves. Selheimer continues, he says, Joseph's story is presented as an historical picture of what might have been. Had Adam, like Joseph, remained obedient and trusted God for the good, the picture of Joseph that emerges is an anticipation of what might still be if God's people would, like Joseph, trust and obey. And that's true. So this might still be, if God's people would only trust and obey, and yet as we work our way through the Old Testament text, what we come to find is that they can't. It's what would still be if they were able to, but they're not able to. And time and time again, we see God's people saying, maybe this time, maybe this time we'll pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. The whole book of Nehemiah, as we saw, is this idea that maybe this time God will usher in his kingdom in the midst of our obedience because we're going to bring it about. And yet there's failure after failure after after failure. And that sets the stage for the need for this Messiah who comes. Jesus came to be the one, the only one, who would trust and obey the Father perfectly. And yet pay the penalty for all those who failed to do so. So that by trusting in him, in his completed work for us, we might have forgiveness. We might have life in him that begins now and goes on for all eternity. In other words, these stories don't really point to Joseph. They're not really about him. You know, as Pharaoh's representative, the people would all bow the knee, the text tells us. Where else in Genesis do you have this imagery of bowing more recently? Well, at the beginning of the Joseph narratives, he has these dreams of his brothers bowing down, or of 12 stalks bowing down to one stock, 12 planets bowing down to one in the middle right there's this bowing but as the story continues it'll be joseph in an immediate kind of way that's the fulfillment of that prophecy but not in an ultimate way we'll actually see that the dream wasn't actually referring to joseph in this text by the time we get to chapter 49 because in chapter 49 jacob again raises the question of his sons bowing down to their brothers and yet the brother that they bow down to according to jacob is actually not joseph It's the young lion prince from the house of Judah. So Salheimer concludes us. He says, Joseph and his dreams have made the way for the coming of the king. Chapter 49, verses 8 through 10, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Who will defeat their foes and restore them to their beautiful land. The same is said of the seed of Abraham, who is a source of divine blessing for all who look to him. The story of Joseph thus looks in two directions. It looks back to Adam and portrays Joseph as a renewal of God's failed ideal. What was lost in Adam's obedience is recovered in, Joseph, uh, in Adam's disobedience is re- recovered in Joseph's obedience. but Joseph's life projects itself into the future of the royal house of Judah and into the last days of Jacob's vision. Once again, the details of Joseph's life are idealized as a model of the one like him who's yet to come. Events. In his life, anticipate the coming of the royal scion of the house of Judah. Like Joseph, his brothers will bow down in homage to him. And like Joseph, he will save his people and bring them into God's good and bountiful land. How will he do this? How will he accomplish this? When it's so clear in every story that's to follow this section that the people can't do this on their own. By living the life we should have lived. But failed to live because of our sin with Adam in the garden. Because of our rejection of God. Because we, with Adam, de-godded God and said, you know, I think I can be better at being God than you. I think I can discern truth better than you. I think I have maybe a more accurate wisdom uh, meter than you. So we rejected God. We failed to live that life, but he didn't. And then he died the death that we should have died because of that. Because of the right judgment that was pronounced at the garden. Because of this rejection of God in our place and as our substitute. And raising to new life that we might have in him by putting our trust in what he's done for us. Giving us now new hearts that by the spirit of God at work through his word can discern the good and the bad. Why? Not because of me. Because the spirit is at work revealing what God has said. Even when it's hard for my heart to understand. That God is the source of true wisdom. That his word stands as authoritative and true. This is why at Gospel Life Church we proclaim the table to one another. This morning we're not doing that. For the first time in a long time we're not doing that. We are uh, in a season of transitioning back hopefully soon to the way that we practice the Lord's table together for those who are comfortable uh, coming forward and receiving that. We're also in between back-ordered shipments of juice and bread in the form that that, uh, we have in uh, every week. So there will be those still available, but hopefully as we move forward into the future, we can transition back to some of our former rhythms. But the reason that we do this is because weekly we find grace in the proclamation of the gospel. That we shouldn't actually be surprised by the reality, and I say this a lot, but we shouldn't be surprised by the reality that the ordinances that that Jesus established for his church to repeat in the life of their church are actually gospel proclamations. That they proclaim the reality of of his body broken and his blood shed. That they proclaim the reality in baptism of our former selves dying that death with with christ being buried and then rising to a new way of life why all of this repetition for the same reason that we see repetition in our text this morning because god has fixed it he has firmly decided that this is true he will bring it about in christ and he has done so we know now that Jesus goes with us, that we're in union with him, that we therefore have communion again with the Father, that we get back what was lost in the garden and one day we'll have everything redeemed and restored for all time. So absent the meal this morning, hear that gospel proclamation and let's thank the Lord for it. God, we are reliant on you for truth. We're reliant on you for wisdom. We're reliant on you for discernment. And so give us your spirit that we might understand your word Lord, make us creatures of the word. Allow us not to look into our own hearts for what's good and bad, but allow us to increasingly grow in our trust for you and what it is that you've spoken. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.